0: going to tell God all of my troubles when i get home Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jefferson and Peter Adamson brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich online at historyofphilosophy.net Today's episode written by himself The Life of Frederick Douglass On the speaking tours that established Frederick Douglass's reputation One of his favorite topics was self made men. This quintessentially American theme could not have been more appropriate because America has produced no greater self made man than Douglass. Born into slavery in Maryland in the year 1818, he seized at scraps of opportunity to become literate, earn money on the side as a ship caulker, and then escape his master, Thomas Auld, in 1838. Within a decade, he would be famous. He came to prominence as a public orator, excoriating the evils of slavery. Then in 1845, he published his autobiography, The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, written by himself, which became a sensation. It would sell 11,000 copies in the US and went through nine editions in the UK. Douglass traveled to Ireland and Britain, and while there, purchased his freedom with the financial support of friends. With further support, he launched an anti slavery newspaper, the North Star. Ultimately, he would befriend Abraham Lincoln, who said to Douglass, There is no man in the country whose opinion I value more than yours. After the end of the Civil War, he received political appointments, becoming Marshal of the District of Columbia and later Consul General to Haiti. He died in 1895, having made himself into the foremost black intellectual of the 19th century. That's just a sketch of Douglass's staggeringly eventful and impressive life. It's a life whose story has been told numerous times, starting with Douglass himself. He followed up his best selling narrative with two more autobiographies, My Bondage and My Freedom in 1855, and finally The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass in 1881. Well, not quite finally, because he extended the book in a second edition in 1892. Then quite a few later authors have also written biographies of him, the most recent offering being David Blight's mammoth Pulitzer Prize-winning book Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. The allure is obvious. His experiences as a child and young man formed an unanswerable rebuke to the evils of slavery, while his escape and rise to prominence were an irresistible story of redemption. Yet Douglas himself said in his preface to My and Jed My Freedom, I have never placed my opposition to slavery on a basis as narrow as my own enslavement. That work is much longer than the first autobiography, despite covering not much more of his life story, in part because it goes into more detail but also in part because Douglas reflects at greater length on the nature of slavery and what it does to both the slave and the slaveholder. Having said that, we already hear in the narrative Douglass's distinctive voice, which also made him such an effective speaker. As a contemporary newspaper report remarked, he was a living, speaking, startling proof of the folly, absurdity, and inconsistency, to say nothing worse, of slavery. Fluent, graceful, eloquent, shrewd, sarcastic, He was, without making any allowance, a fine specimen of an orator. As we've seen, questions of authorship could be raised about earlier slave narratives. Intermediaries and well meaning supporters might record, shape, and otherwise frame the experiences of those who actually endured slavery, a phenomenon that has been compared to putting black messages in white envelopes. There's none of this with Douglass, hence that final phrase, written by himself, at the end of the title of his first autobiography. Those three words promise that in what follows, Douglass will be speaking for himself. To get a real sense of his authorial voice, you will need to read his autobiographies and other writings, which survive in considerable quantity, despite many papers and journalistic efforts being destroyed in a fire in 1872. Douglas presents himself as a paradigm of self-reliance, a characteristically American value most famously theorized by Ralph Waldo Emerson. He's an acute and impassioned critic of injustice, with enough imagination to see into the mind of the slaveholder and enough outrage to fuel vigorous condemnations laced with religious rhetoric. The autobiographies are powerful, suspenseful, touching, and sometimes surprisingly funny. Humor was an important weapon in Douglas's arsenal, both as author and as public speaker. One of his standard early performances was a parody of a racist preacher who Douglas imagined giving a speech full of obviously absurd religious justifications for slavery. In another case, he mocked racism by telling the anecdote of a white girl who dreamed of going to heaven. Asked whether there were any black people there, she replied, oh, I didn't go into the kitchen. This sort of thing was not to everyone's taste. A letter from one audience member, written in 1843, complained that he was more in the narrative and familiar vein and kept the audience laughing all the time. She would probably not have liked the more sarcastic passages in Douglas's autobiographies either, like the part of My Bondage and My Freedom that explains how wonderful it is to be a young slave. Such a child can't ruin his clothes while playing because he doesn't have any. And he is never reprimanded for soiling the tablecloth, for he takes his meals on the clay floor. But Douglas was offering more than irony and parody. Not much later, we have a section describing his early struggles to understand the slave system. Looking back on his seven or eight year old self, Douglas says, I could not reconcile the relation of slavery with my crude notions of goodness. Finally, light dawned. It was not color, but crime, not God, but man that afforded the true explanation of the existence of slavery. The appalling darkness faded away, and I was master of the subject. The reference to his enslaved child self as master itself looks like a barbed wordplay, but used to make the most serious of points. The point is in part a philosophical one, as Douglas suggests the reliability of inborn and unspoiled moral intuition. Indeed, one of the reasons slavery is so wicked is that it undermines that natural tendency to see what is good. The point is implicit in Douglass' description of his relationship to his first owner, Captain Aaron Anthony, who he also at times suspected was his father. In awe of the absolute power of this distant old master, the young Douglass was aware of his own entire dependence. On the will of somebody I had never seen. His unjust relationship to this owner is a perversion of man's relation to a distant and absolutely powerful but perfectly just God. This idea that slavery perverts morality and Christian religion is a leitmotif in Douglas's writing. Speaking of another master's wife, Sophia Auld, he remarks that her natural kindness and generosity was undermined by the need to oppress her human chattel, so that slavery proved as injurious to her as it did to me. Or, as he elsewhere puts it, there's some truth to the saying that slavery is a greater evil to the master than the slave. Douglas suggests that slaveholders, as much as slaves, have their various status as rational beings undermined by the tyrannical power they wield. Whereas the slaves are reduced to the level of a mere beast to be bought and sold, the master's license to wield arbitrary violence means that they simply follow their irrational passions, rather than having to give reasons for their actions, even to themselves. In the autobiographies, Douglass gives many concrete examples of the immorality of the slave owners. There are scenes of murder and beating, and intimations of systematic rape, and he also speaks of the way masters encourage drinking and other bad behavior among slaves to keep them passive and weak. He observes mordantly that it is worse to be the slave of a master who aspires to religious piety than a more secular-minded one. An appendix to his first autobiography discusses the vast gulf between real Christianity and Christianity as it actually exists in the slaveholding United States. But amidst all this hypocrisy, Douglass is able to maintain his own ethical compass. This ratifies his theory of innate moral intuition and also fits with his repeated claims that he has been guided in his life by divine providence. One of Douglass's most famous quotes, knowledge makes a man unfit to be a slave, expresses another idea that echoes throughout the autobiographies. It is in the interest of the slaveholder to turn their human chattel, who are in fact moral and intellectual beings, into ignorant creatures on a level with animals. The slightest glimpse of a more fully human life will make them restless and disobedient. This was Douglass' own experience. Every slight improvement in his condition made him chafe more at his own freedom, this being an inevitable feature of human nature. One of the most powerful roads to self-mastery is education. Something else that Douglas intuited at an early age. He thinks he may have inherited the ambition from his mother, whom he was not allowed to know well, but as he proudly reports, was unusual in being literate. This was an instinct Douglas' masters needed to suppress. For, as he observes, to make a contented slave, you must make a thoughtless one. It is necessary to darken his moral and mental vision, and as far as possible, to annihilate his power of reason. We're given a particularly sickening glimpse. Into life among the slaveholding class, when Sophia Auld is berated by her husband for teaching Douglas how to read. Auld tells her, and here we'll substitute a euphemism for Auld's racist oath, learning would spoil the best N-word in the world. Now, if you teach that N-word how to read, there would be no keeping him, it would forever unfit him to be slave. Douglas elsewhere comments that this logic was, in its own terms, impeccable, even when it again led to an undermining of Christian piety. If slavery be right, Sabbath schools for teaching slaves to read the Bible are wrong and ought to be put down. But he was not to be dissuaded from his goal and got white boys in the street to teach him how to read. He would go on to teach other slaves in turn. The fact that slavery seeks to turn its victims into illiterate beasts comes to the fore in the most famous incident of Douglass' enslavement his conflict with the sadistic, bullying, and cowardly Edward Covey. This was a man to whom Douglass was loaned out who had a reputation as a slave-breaker, that is, someone who could turn an unruly slave into an obedient one. It was in Standing Up to Covey that the self-made man first began to make himself. I was nothing before, I was a man now. The story begins when the teenage Douglas is beaten mercilessly by Covey for losing control of a pair of oxen. He goes to his master to complain, saying that he fears for his life if Covey continues to have power over him, but is summarily dismissed. At this point, Douglass' Christian instinct to turn the other cheek is literally beaten out of him in another illustration of the way that slavery defeats piety, my hands were no longer tied by my religion. He confronts Covey, and the two get into a protracted and brutal fistfight, which cows Covey to the extent that he never lays a hand on Douglas again. There's a lot to say about this tale, which is treated as central in all three autobiographies, but given different emphasis and detail in each case. For starters, Douglas is able to inflict a final defeat on Covey by casting him as a minor character in his own story. Like the Baron de before him, Douglas identifies victimizers, exposing them to the judgment of posterity. As he says when introducing a particularly egregious religious hypocrite named Rigby Hopkins, I might as well immortalize another of my neighbors by calling him by name and putting him in print. As for the aforementioned theme of humans and animals, when describing his rough treatment at Covey's hands, Douglas explicitly compares himself to the poor beasts of burden. They were to be broken, and so was I. Yet he goes on to compare Covey to another animal, namely the sneaky and dangerous snake. So it is the slave driver, not the slave, who is truly bestial. By defying the animalistic Covey, then, Douglas lays claim to his humanity. This fits pretty well with a philosophical approach to the story first put forward by Angela Davis. That interprets it in terms of existentialism. The insight here is that Douglass' desperation is such that he is willing to risk death in order to stake a claim to freedom. His assertion of dignity and self worth shows that he and he alone is responsible for that freedom. This is a powerful reading and makes especially good sense of the version in the narrative, Douglass's first autobiography, which does seem to put the individual struggle at the center of the tale. Extrapolating the message of the Covey incident would be that black Americans should rise up as free individual subjects, violently if necessary, to defy the constraints placed upon them. But, as several other commentators have pointed out, the version of the story we get in My Bondage and My Freedom, the second autobiography, is rather different. It puts more emphasis on black solidarity, telling how two other slaves courageously refused to help Covey restrain Douglas. So in this version, we don't have the irreducible individual faced by an existential struggle for his own freedom, but a politically united group that works together to win space for at least a limited degree of practical autonomy. On this interpretation, the story of Covey would go together with Douglass' account of how he joined forces with several other slaves, who were true as steel and like a band of brothers, to plot an escape from bondage. Extrapolating now from this second reading, we would get the idea That black Americans should join together to carry out politically engaged action. As we'll be seeing in more detail next time, there is evolution and complexity involved in saying what form of political action Douglass encouraged. For now, we can say that as his career developed, he became increasingly open to the idea of working within America's political system to achieve emancipation and uplift for African Americans. This meant moving away from the ideas of his initial backer, William Lloyd Garrison. Whose group of abolitionist public speakers, Douglas joined after he escaped from slavery. Douglas first became aware of Garrison through the latter's newspaper, The Liberator. Upon reading it, Douglas says his soul was set all on fire. Once he got in touch with Garrison's group and joined his roster of speakers, Douglas for a time followed Garrison's lead on tactical and philosophical matters. This meant staying out of conventional politics. Garrison was convinced that America's system was rotten to the core and that the constitution itself was a pro-slavery document. He thus followed a policy of defiant non-involvement in the country's political institutions. At first Douglas was inclined to agree. Upon arriving in Ireland, he experienced what life could be like without the daily humiliations of American racism. He was not treated as a color, but as a man. At one point, he wrote to Garrison to say that patriotism had been whipped out of me long since by the lash of the American soul-drivers. But as we know, he would eventually become deeply involved in national politics. His various attitudes towards the United States is something else that will be in focus next time, but we should note right now that his break with Garrison was not only over political principles. It was also because of the way Garrison and his associates saw Douglas. Certainly, they showed him more respect than many Americans would have. Garrison was a tireless opponent of slavery. In the first issue of The Liberator, he had written, I will not equivocate, I will not excuse." I will not retreat a single inch. And when he brought Douglas onto a stage in Nantucket in 1841, he thundered, Have we been listening to a thing, a piece of property, or to a man? Douglas presumably liked the sound of that, but would have been less enthused at the way Garrison tried to make the same point on a different occasion. It is recorded in holy writ that a beast once spoke, A greater miracle is here tonight, a chattel becomes a man this suggests how little the Garrisonians wanted from Douglas, To be living proof that black people are indeed people, and an object of sympathy who would recount his moving life story. As one of the group told him, give us the facts, we will take care of the philosophy. But Douglas wanted more. It did not entirely satisfy me to narrate wrongs, I felt like denouncing them. The measure of his dissatisfaction is told by the distance between his first and second autobiographies. For all its rhetorical brilliance, the narrative adheres more closely to the usual conventions of a slave narrative. My Bondage and My Freedom, by contrast, offers many passages of moral reflection and editorial commentary. Douglass says modestly that, it is not within the scope of the design of my simple story to comment upon every phase of slavery not within my experience as a slave, but you can tell he doesn't mean it. His involvement with white abolitionists had allowed him to travel, to buy his freedom, and to make a name for himself, but he found the role they had assigned to him confining, and was deliberately going beyond it in the second autobiography. David Blight has summed up the situation well. He was trapped in a deal that both offered him the world and stifled the kind of freedom he perhaps cherished most- the freedom of mind and of the words he would choose to express himself. Douglas finally broke away from Garrison's project in eighteen forty seven when he founded his own newspaper, The North Star edited together with Martin Delaney, on whom more in a future episode. Garrison didn't appreciate the competition, and saw it as a betrayal, the beginning of a long deterioration in their relationship, which would end with Garrison calling Douglas one of his malignant enemies. The masthead on the first issue of Douglas's new paper said, Right is of no sex, truth is of no color, God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren. As that first phrase indicates, Slavery was not the only injustice against which Douglass fought. He was an early proponent of women's suffrage, having been converted by the arguments of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. He spoke at the first convention for women's rights at Seneca Falls in 1848, where he was the only black participant. This is an especially admirable aspect of Douglass's already more than admirable career, and he knew it. When I ran away from slavery, he said, it was for myself. When I advocated emancipation, it was for my people that when I stood up for the rights of woman, self was out of the question, and I found a little nobility in the act. He recognized the crusade against sexism as continuous with the fight against racism, saying after abolition that the women's suffrage campaign was a continuance of the old anti-slavery movement, and involved much the same arguments. Some sense of the parallel is conveyed by the similarity of the following two quotes from his pen, I deny that the black man's degradation is essential to the white man's elevation. And woman cannot be elevated without elevating man, and man cannot be depressed without depressing woman also. Yet just as with Garrison, Douglas would experience tensions with his allies in the women's movement. Though he did see gender equality as an urgent issue, he didn't think it was quite as urgent as racial equality because blacks were subject to levels of violence and oppression that simply didn't affect white women. He rejected equivalences drawn between slavery and the plight of females in a male-dominated society and had no objection to enfranchising male black voters before women received the vote. On the other side of this debate, the priorities were the other way around, as some proponents of women's suffrage indulged in racist arguments. Stanton, Douglas's erstwhile tutor in the subject of gender oppression, complained that under American law, women were classed with idiots, lunatics and negroes. Though Douglass's rise from slavery to national spokesman is the most famous and gripping part of his life, we should touch at least briefly on a few points from Douglass's later career, which is covered in his third and final autobiography, The Life and Times. He here discusses his steadfast adherence to the Republican Party, which survived moments of frustration at Lincoln's caution with abolition, and then the measures he proposed to take towards a defeated South. At one point, he even complained that Lincoln's tendency was to do evil by choice, right from necessity. Yet he mourned Lincoln's death, which he said united the people of his city, Rochester, to the extent that it made us more than countrymen, it made us kin. Given the racism of the Democratic Party of his day, he continued to support the Republican Party after the Civil War. Douglas was unsurprisingly disappointed at the failure of Reconstruction in the South and the resulting suppression of voting rights, along with the increased use of lynching as he remarked at the 1876 Republican National Convention, what does it all amount to if the black man, after having been made free by the letter of your law, is unable to exercise that freedom, and having been freed from the slaveholder's lash, he is to be subject to the slaveholder's shotgun. In the third autobiography, Douglas is also at pains to defend his conduct as envoy to Haiti, where he was torn between his sympathy for the black population of the island and his assigned task of pursuing american interests notably by securing dominion over a port there in 1891 he resigned his position undermined by the impression that he sided with the haitians but this is probably unfair douglas was willing to criticize the haitian government of the day for its repressive policies just as he was willing to admonish his own government for trying to bully this poor country into making disadvantageous agreements but if he regretted his involvement with haiti That doesn't show in the final autobiography, which concludes by calling his invitation to represent the island at the World Exposition in 1893, a fitting and happy close to my whole public life. That seems like a fitting note on which to end this episode, too. After all, if it's good enough for Frederick Douglass, it's more than good enough for us. But we're not done with him yet. Having looked in this installment at his life story, we'll turn next to two of his most important speeches. These speeches raise the question of what America meant to Douglass, given the ways he saw himself as a citizen of the world, and they encourage us to ask questions about the meanings of national holidays, including America's Independence Day. Look out for the rhetorical fireworks as we continue to explore the thought of Frederick Douglass, here on The History of African Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God all of my troubles